We are starting here from three lines down. Somebody who wounds Evakanani of someone else is liable. So he pays all the categories of damage, and presumably he pays them to the owner. Because when you own Evakanani, you totally own him like an asset completely. So therefore, you're going to pay the master for all the compensations, including Boshes, because there was a humiliation. Even though he is a slave, he can still be humiliated. Behuda said yesterday that no, slaves get no boshes. There's no boshes payment for a slave. So the Gemara says, my time to Yehuda. What's the reason for that? And clearly, we understand that there is a, a real humiliation, meaning they're not arguing if a slave could be humiliated. A slave presumably certainly could be humiliated. So then why is it that Rabbi Yehuda is saying there's no payment of humiliation if somebody strikes a slave? Amar Kra. The Pasuk says here, this is, remember, the case of Boshas in the Torah, the cases where a woman is trying to protect her husband and she grabs the private parts of the person striking her husband. So it says, when two people are fighting with one another, a man and his brother. So obviously it doesn't mean a literal brother, it means two men. But the language that the Torah uses is a man and his brother. So we darshan, and then that's when she goes and she grabs the brother's private part. So we're talking about someone who has the potential to have a brother meaning someone who could be a brother with a regular member of Klai Yisrael. Yatza Eved, this excludes a slave. She'ein lo achva. He does not have a potential for having a brother with the rest of Klai Yisrael because he, he's not able to marry. And Eved Kenani is not able to marry a regular Jewish woman, so he's never going to be able to have a brother who's a regular Jew. So therefore, the Patsukah says that the scenario of humiliation is between when a, bro- when a Jew and his brother are fighting and then one of them ends up getting embarrassed. So that excludes a case of where a slave became embarrassed. So it ends up being a Xeris HaKasav. So basically, Rabbi Yudah's point is that if the Torah says Achiv, a slave is not Achiv. Says the Gemara for Abana and Achiv of Mitzvah. No, Eved Kenani is a brother. Why? Because what does Achiv mean? According to them, it's not about being a literal brother. It means it's a brother because we both do mitzvahs. Remember, Eved Kenani does the same mitzvahs that a woman does. That's derived from Xavier Shava. He's like somewhat Jewish. So we say that he's a brother in the sense that he has the common, the common bind that a Jew has to do mitzvahs, a slave has as well. So that's the machlokas. Rabbi Yudah says he is achiv. Rabbi Yudah says he's not achiv. Says the Gemara, according to this, Rabbi Yudah, who says that achiv is not a slave, then we shouldn't kill Edom Zomin who tried to testify against a slave. We know you have kashra zomin for Edom Zomin, but the Pasuk says you do to them, you do to them like they conspired to do to his brother. So if they said testimony that could hurt in Kanani, so it should come out, you shouldn't punish them because they didn't conspire to hurt a brother, according to Rabbi Yudah, that a slave is not a brother. But you know what else it says by Edom Zomin? It says you should eradicate evil from your midst. So that's extra words. So that comes to say that you give Kashra Zomam even if they were testifying against a slave, despite the fact that he's not technically a brother. Okay, it says more Elamiata. Lirabanon, who say that a slave is considered a brother because he's obligated to mitzvot. So why can't the slave be a king? Because the Torah does say that it should come, the care of Achach, it should come from your brothers. So we know, though, that a slave can't be a king, but why not? He is your brother, according to Rabbanon. He's a brother in mitzvahs. Like Rabbi that's good. He's not a brother, because brother, according to Rabbi Yudah, means someone like more literal, not a slave. But according to Rabbanon, an Evid is a brother, so why is the halacha that an Evid cannot be a king? According to your reasoning, what about a convert? Everybody agrees that the son of a convert is considered a brother, even according to Rabbi Yudah, he could have a literal brother. So, And we know that if someone doesn't come from naturally born Jews, if someone is born to a convert, the halacha is, they cannot be a king. 
So that's certainly difficult because certainly that's called a brother. If you look at the language of the Pasuk, it doesn't just say a brother is a king. It says, from the midst of your brothers. From the midst of your brothers means it has to be from like the elitist of the nation. right? The elite of the nation, meaning like the most choicest part of the nation. So here, even though it says brother, but it says, means So generally, maybe a brother... Taka um, includes a slave and certainly includes the son of a convert. But for a king, it's a different criteria. Okay, so now, again, what do we have? We have machlokas about somebody who humiliates a slave. If, you, if there's a chiv boshes, the machlokas is about whether or not a slave is considered a, your brother. Rabbi Yudha says he's not your brother because he can't literally have brothers. I mean, we're regular Jews. Rabbi Yudha says he's your brother because of the common idea that both you and the slave are chayv in mitzvahs. So it says, according to Rabbi Yudha, according to and a slave should be allowed to give testimony. What does the Pasuk say? What's the criteria? There was a false witness, Sheker Anabachiv. He testified falsely against a brother. So why do we say that, um, that, that, he, that he's possible for Eidos? In other words, the Gemara has been assuming now that the halacha is that a slave is possible for Eidos. So why is that? Why don't we say... Why don't we say that uh, we? Why don't Why don't we say that that, that if it says Achiv in the pasuk that is uh, a brother is the one uh, you're saying hey, this about a brother, so that should include an Eved because he's included in that term a brother. Again, like Rabbi Yehuda, would be good because he's not a brother, doesn't have a brother. But like the Rabbanan, he's included in the term of brother because he's brother in mitzvos. So why can't the slave? Say Adas. This is the question of the Mar. So you can't bring about testimony. Because this qualified testimony, we know he can't be good. Kabahomer from the fact that a woman is no good. Right? The Torah always says a a ish, like a a, a man. So if I'm Dushne Anashim, the Pasuk says, we know a woman is no good. And if a woman is no good, certainly a slave. Because Umayisha, she rule of a bakal. A woman is is as an advantage over a slave. She is fit to marry people, right? She can marry into the nation. She, she's good. Psula nonetheless, she's no good for testimony. So a slave who's not fit to marry into the congregation, certainly he's worse. So in other words, despite the fact that he is an, uh, that he is a brother, now he's not excluded from being a brother, but it's an issue of something else. Once we know a woman is not eligible for testimony, she cannot be a witness. So then we say that a slave cannot. Says the Misha, says the Gemara, Mali Shikanirilvimila. This is classic. Uh, the Gemara makes a pericha. It doesn't necessarily have to relate to the Indian. It's just a, a logical distinction. Is that a woman, maybe she's disqualified only because she doesn't uh, have a brismila. A slave does have a brismila. You do circumcise the slave before he starts working. So the Lord says, I'll prove to you that it's not, that the eligibility for testimony has nothing to do with brismila because a minor proves, he does have circumcision. Because again, it says Anoshim, the two men stand up. But you're going to argue about a minor that he's not obligated to mitzvah. So we're going in circles because then a woman proves that the mitzvah is not the factor. She has the mitzvah, she has the mitzvah. She killed kinds of testimony. So what's the bottom line? There are two people who cannot give testimony, a woman and a child. So let's find the common denominator between them and see if it applies to the slave. The argument just could repeat itself in circles for days. The final analysis is the slave cannot be directly compared to the, to the, to the, to the child and it cannot be directly compared to the woman. But... Even though they're different, what is the common characteristic to the woman and the minor? They both share the common characteristic that they're not obligated in every mitzvah. 
A woman's not obligated at all. And that's what we assume is the factor that makes them unfit for testimony. So if that's what it is, I should include the slave as well. He's not included in all mitzvahs. Therefore, we should assume he's unfit to testify. So now we're good. We should think we're at the place that the reason why a slave cannot testify is because he's not obligated in all mitzvahs. What are you going to compare? How can you learn this from a slave and a minor? Maybe their issue is that they're not a regular adult man. He's an adult man. Meaning that common denominator between minor and woman does not necessarily bring me to assume that a slave should not be good. Because maybe their, their issue is that they're not an adult man. A slave is an adult man. Says the Gemara, you're right. Let's try to derive from somewhere else. Let's assume the reason why a slave cannot testify is because we learn from a robber. A robber is an adult man. And he can marry, marry a regular Jewish girl, but he still can't testify. That's a pasuk in the Torah. That someone who steals is disqualified from testifying. So now we're trying to say, let's learn it from there. A robber who's, who's fit to marry a regular Jewish girl is not disqual- is still disqualified from testifying. So certainly a slave who's unfit to marry a regular Jewish girl should be unfit from testimony. I He did something bad, right? He's a sinner. He did something bad. Tell more bad. She gained mice of Garmelo. He didn't do anything wrong. This Kanani slave. So the Gemara clarifies. You're right. I'll learn from the robber and either a woman or a minor. Because what am I going to bring from that? Right? There's no common. What's the Tzadashava between the robber and, let's say, a woman? The idea of Drashi is that they don't keep all the mitzvahs. They actually obligate, right? The, 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 the robber's hiding all the mitzvahs. He doesn't keep all of them, right? He doesn't keep the, 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 the theft. So we see that someone who's not fulfilling all the mitzvahs cannot testify. So too a slave who's not fulfilling all the mitzvahs because he's not obligated in all of them. Um, so then he cannot, he cannot testify. So that's the maskana of the Gemara. That even though Rabbi Wannan say that generally a bro, uh, uh, the, the term of brother includes a slave, it does not exclude a slave because he's a, your brother in mitzvahs, but a slave still cannot give testimony. And the reason is we learn a tzad hashav, a commentary characteristic between a robber and let's say a minor or a woman together and they bring and they teach me that if you don't fulfill all the mitzvahs, you cannot be, you cannot be a witness. Says the Gemara now another source that his slave is disqualified from giving testimony. Just, just let's take a look at the pasuk before we read it. It's a, it's a cryptic pasuk. It says, "Fathers should not uh, which means fathers shouldn't be put to death because of sons. And sons should not be put to death because of fathers. A person dies only for his own sin. So what's I guess the simple shot? The simple shot is that maybe you would think that it means like just because one person died did a crime in the family. Don't punish anyone else. But that's exceedingly obvious. So what is really the Pasuk saying? It really is coming to tell you another point, that a father cannot give testimony about a son, and a son cannot give testimony about a father to incriminate them. But now the Gemara is making it even more complicated. People in general shouldn't be put to death through the testimony of a father who cannot have a relationship to his son. Who is a father who cannot have a relationship to his son? A slave. A slave, is his son is not legally related to him. A very interesting idea. A slave does not have chayas. He doesn't have that yichas. So that's what the Pasuk is saying. It's saying that if you have someone who comes to the court and he would be a father who would have no relationship to his son legally, then that is a person who cannot put anyone to death. Meaning he is a person who cannot testify. A slave who is a father who cannot have a relation with his son is someone who cannot put someone to death. He cannot testify. If you would think it just means 
It just means that a father can't testify about his own son to, to, to incriminate him. It just says a father should be put to death because of their sons. My bonim, why does the Torah say the general expression on sons? Why doesn't it say their sons? We see that our Joshua is correct. People who won't have a connection to their sons cannot say Eidos here in general, and it's coming to tell you a slave is unfit to testify. Says the Quran, if that's what the beginning of that Pasuk means, what's the end of the Pasuk? Sons cannot, should not be put to death because of fathers. So what does that mean? So if you're according to the Ardrasha way of speaking it out, Hachanami would mean that people who come in and they are sons, but they're not related to their father, who would that be? A convert. A convert is someone who could be a son, but unrelated to his father, because when you convert, you're not related to your previous biological um, um, any connection in your family. So then it should come out that that's what the Torah is saying. <coughs> that a convert should be disqualified from testimony. He doesn't have a legal relationship with his father. That's what the Torah is saying. means that people who come into court to testify don't accept their testimony if they are sons who have no relation to their father. So you should come out that a convert is no good. And that's not true. The convert could give testimony. Says It's not a good comparison. Ger doesn't have chayas above to his father. But he would, have a, he would have a legal relationship if a ger had a child, then he would. That's different by a slave. A slave has no uh, relationship either above to a father or to his son. He just completely doesn't have chayas at all. And the Gemara now justifies why this is so right. If you would think that a ger is really pasaledos, then the Torah wouldn't have to say both. Let the Torah just say father should be to death because of their sons for what we said. They shouldn't be put to death through the testimony of their own sons. Meaning, don't tell me at all that an evidence possible. Just tell me that the, a son who testifies about his own father is no good. But then, in the second part of the passage, son should not be put to death because of fathers, meaning not their fathers, but fathers in general. We'll learn from there two things. Children shouldn't be put to death because of the testimony of their own father. And also, that a ger is no good, and it's saying that a person who comes into court to testify, and he doesn't have a legal relation with his father, then he's no good. And that will tell me a, a, a convert is no good. So in other words, basically, just tell me the convert is no good. And I'll, then I'll say, if a ger is no good, certainly a slave is no good. Because a convert is no good. Who's cut off only from his father, having a relationship with his father, but he does have a relationship with his son, Apostle Edis, he's disqualified. So then, a slave who doesn't have a relationship with either above or below, with a father or a son, and certainly he's disqualified. So why would the Torah have to say it? And because of Rahmanim to Avos for the fact that the Torah in the beginning of the Apostle did speak out, William to Avos Albanim. Which is mashman that is coming to exclude a slave. We see that it's only excluding a slave. It's only a slave. who doesn't have a relationship either to the father or the son is disqualified. Regarding the convert. Since she does have a relationship below with his son, he is fit for testimony. So we're saying the fact that they had to say a slave is no good indicates that a convert is good. I fine, fine, fine. So then the obvious looming question is, So why in the end of the Pasuk did it say, If it's not coming to exclude a ger, just say, 
answer it. It does lend and it does to, for interpretation. It does imply that it converts no good. The answer is no. It's just for symmetry. Since the beginning of the pasuk says fathers are not put to death because of sons, because the beginning of the pasuk was coming to exclude the slave. Cause of nami yubanim lim suavos. Just for 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 style for consistency here, we say at the end of the pasuk, sons should not be put to death because of fathers, even though it really could have said and should have said sons should not be put to, put to death because of their fathers. So in conclusion, I know there's a lot of drushes there. In conclusion, we're coming out with a couple simple facts to put in your pocket. We, we're saying that there's a huge machlokas here between the Rabbanon and Rabbi Yehuda. If someone injures a slave, if they have to pay, boshes for the injury to the slave. What is the machlokas about? The Torah speaks about the scenario of boshes when a man and a brother are fighting. And the question is, is a slave considered a brother? Rabbi Yehuda says he is not because he can't literally have brothers. They're not related. However, he can't marry into the regular Jewish kahal. However, the Rabbanon say he is a brother because he shares mitzvahs. He's chayv in mitzvahs, so he's your brother in mitzvahs. That's the machlokas. It comes out, though, that, 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 that the, the Gemara wanted to know, <coughs> according to, according to the, um, the Rabbanon, that he's a brother, he should be kosher le'edus. Why is a slave not kosher le'edus? The Gemara had to bring a bunch of sources, two sources. How we know a slave is not kosher le'edus? Either we derive from inside a of a robber, and a woman or a robber and a, and a minor who are not good, so too a slave is no good. Or we learn it from a Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Limsu avos albanim, which we interpret to mean that someone who cannot have a relationship with his children, i.e. a slave, is possible laetus. However, the Gemara does clarify that a convert still is kosher laetus. All right, now we move to a new topic here. In fact, it's such a new topic that we're not going to even get in today in the daf to why it relates to our Mishnah. So we're just going to start the topic, and eventually tomorrow you'll see why it's related to our Mishnah. The Mishnah, I mean, I just give away just a tiny bit. The Mishnah spoke about how when a married woman does damage, so she's not liable to pay even because she doesn't have money to pay with. That was the main point. Only when she, if she would get divorced would she pay when she has money. So the Gemara is going to examine the, these finances in a couple's relationship. Okay, so here we go. And I guess one introduction, when a woman gets married, if she, she brings in property to the marriage, so the law is that the husband has the right to use it. It's called nechseh maluk. And the, the law is the husband has the right to use it, but he doesn't own it. He just has the right to use it. So what does that mean? That means if, let's say, she brings in a field, then the husband can eat the fruit of the field. That's what we call paras. It's not only fruit, it's just an example of using it. And, but again, the woman really owns it. She owns the property. Now, another halacha, though, which is why things get complicated, is that if a woman dies, who inherits her? Only her husband. So if, let's say, that field, uh, what would happen after the woman passes on? The husband would become the full owner of it. So while she's alive, the husband eats the fruit of the field. After the death of his wife, he would become the full owner of the field. Says the Gemara, the mother of Shmobar Abba, she was married to her Abba. She wrote over her property. She wrote it over to Shmobar Abba, her son. Meaning to say, she's married to her Abba now, and she writes that her property should go to her son or Shmobar Abba. So, what, what, why? Why did she want this? She wanted to make sure that Rabbi Abba wouldn't inherit it if she died. I guess she was sick or something. She didn't want her husband to inherit it. So she writes over in a document, I'm giving this field as a gift to her son. Fine. But 
So the question is, is that a valid giving away as a gift? After she died, top of the Although He said that, yes, he's the rightful owner. So even though a husband inherits his wife, so we're saying that's very good if she owned it at the time of her death. But here, she, is she the mother gave it away even though she was married, um, the mother gave it away as a gift, so therefore very good. So it's, he's the rightful owner, and uh, when she dies, the property is not inherited by the husband. Now, why is that a chadish? Why is that to we'll give it away, right? She's the owner. The answer is, let's think over here. What's going on over here is that the husband is not only a potential future Yorish. Even now, while they're married, he has the rights to use it. So he's the right to use it, and he's standing to inherit it, and the, still we're saying that she gives it away as a gift, that's valid. So the Gemara examines that. Also, Rabbi Abba Amar the Moshe comes to Rabbi Yosher. Rabbi Abba went and said it over to Rabbi Yosher. Rabbi Yosher comes to Rabbi Yosher. He said it over to Rabbi Yosher. Amar the Rabbi Yosher said, "Achim Shmuel Shmuel said differently." A woman who sold a muluk property during her lifetime of, of her husband, and then the woman died. What's the law? The husband removes the property from the possession of the person who bought, purchased it. So therefore, Rabbi Abba has the right to prevent Rabbi Shmuel Rabbi Abba from taking possession of the property. So it doesn't go to the son. It does not go to the son. It goes instead to the husband. Now what's the pshat? The pshat basically is, since you had the right to use it, and, well, in the lifetime, and in addition you stand to inherit it, we basically say you could block any sale. It's a fascinating concept. You, you're, you're too much of a, you have too much of a stake here in the property for the, uh, the owner to make a sale on it. So the Gemara, so, so this should be over here, they should take it away from the son. So I'm going to come to Rabbi Abba. They said this over in front of Rabbi Abba. And he says, no, I know I'm a little, I know I'm a I know in a Mishnah that supports my opinion. And uh, I don't care that Shmuel disagrees with me because I know that a Mishnah supports what I said. Now we're going to get into a, a long discussion for the Mishnah and we'll come back to our case. What's the Mishnah? Did not. Someone writes over his properties to his son for him to acquire after the father's death. So what's the case? The father has a bunch of sons. I guess he doesn't want them all to share it equally after he dies. So he's trying to give it to one son. Okay, big problem. Never, uh, never good to do that. But, but that, that's the father's plan. But he doesn't want to give it fully to him now because the father still wants to use the fruit while he's alive to use the field. So he wrote to a property that I'm giving my possession to my son, but he should acquire it only after the death. So he's basically saying, you're acquiring it now that you're the technical owner, but I still retain the right to the fruits. Meaning you have the Kenyan Gulf, you have the essence of it now, but the usability, the usage of it, I retain I have the Kenyan payros until my death. That's what the father writes. So while the father's alive, the son is the technical owner and the father is the owner of the fruit. It says that the son cannot sell the property completely because they're still in the possession of the father. Meaning the son can't make a full sale of the land because the father still has the rights to the produce. Right? So if he, he can't knock out his father's rights to eat the fruit. The father cannot sell the property completely because he already gave it technically to the son. So the son owns the land itself and he stands to own the produce after his father's death. So the father can't sell it. However, this just means you can't completely sell it. Machar Av, the father sold him, he could sell his rights to his fruit until he dies. Meaning, right now, until he dies, the father is the usage of the fruit. And the son is the technical owner of the essence of the land. So the father can't completely sell it, but he could sell the fruits that will be there until his death. Machar Av, if the son sold the property, the buyer has nothing in the property until the father dies. Meaning the buyer can't take any of the produce while the father is still alive. Those rights were retained to the, to, to the father. That's what the Mishnah says. So again, if the son tried to sell it, let's remember, the son stands to inherit it fully when he dies. And second of all, but, but right now, the father's eating the fruit. 
So it says that if the son sells it, so the buyer has nothing until the father dies. So what does it sound like? <coughs> In the last case, when the father does die, the buyer would then acquire the property. When the buyer bought it, it was at a time when he couldn't use the fruits, he couldn't access it. But when the father dies, it sounds like the buyer gets it. It's true even if, the Gemara implies, even if the son would die during the father's lifetime, it never came, the rights of the fruit never came to the possession of the son. Meaning, if the, if the, son would still be alive when the father would die. It wouldn't be such a chiddush. Why? Because then, the, what would happen is, all, it, it, it stood to go to the son. Remember, the father wrote to the son, I'm giving it to you now and after I die. Meaning, its essence is to you now and the fruits are after I pass. So if the son is still alive, then it makes sense that the sale that the son made should be upheld because any, it would have come completely to the son now. So that sale that he had made, that it should go to Lokeach, is able to be fulfilled. But what if the son had already passed on? So when the son was alive, and at the time he was alive, he owned it for the essence, but the father still had the fruit. And the son sold it. And at that time, and at that time the father still had the fruit. The son sold it. Now the son passes away. He's out of the picture. And now the father dies. It's still implied in the Mishnah. The Gemara assumes we, it's a good diak in the Mishnah that the buyer would be the owner of it and it wouldn't go to the father's other yarshim. So basically that means that the son's sale is a good sale at the time, despite the fact that the father had usage of it during what the sale was made. And the Gemara gives you background information that actually it's, that's a dispute. It doesn't matter if the son died during the lifetime of the father, where the produce never came to the possession of the son. It doesn't make a difference if the father died while the son was still alive, where the produce did come to the possession of the son. Either way, the buyer acquires it. Because not everyone agrees to that. It was said, the son sold it while the father was alive, but the son died first. So it never came to the possession of the son. Is the sale that the son made still upheld? Rabbi Yochanan disagrees. The buyer does not acquire the property when the father dies. Rather, when the property dies, the property goes to all the, all the other yarshim of the father. Lagish says, no, the buyer acquires the property when the father dies. And now the Gemara explains, first without the Svara, how the reading of the Mishnah goes with like each opinion. He says the buyer does not acquire the property. Amalach, he tells you, when did the Mishnah say? The Mishnah said, if the son sold it, the buyer doesn't acquire it until the father dies. Which implies, when the father dies, the buyer does acquire it. That's only talking about the son didn't die yet. The son's still alive. So now the produce comes to the possession of the son, and now his sale is upheld. But if the son died first, the produce never came to his possession. So all we have is that he sold it while he was the technical owner, but the father had the Kenyan payros. When the father dies, does not go to the buyer. Now we get to see the Svara. Alma Kasavar, you know what the Pshad in this is? And let's just make sure we're absolutely clear in the case before we proceed. Let's make sure we're really clear. The father owned the field completely. He writes to his son, I'm giving it to you now, but I retain the right to use it until I die. After I die, it's going to be all yours. Fine. Very good. Now, in, while, while the father's alive, the son sells it. So clearly, he can't sell it and knock off his father's rights to the fruit. He can't do that. The fruits belong to the father. But the question is, when the father dies, and the son is already dead as well, son died, does the sale be upheld? Does the, does the lokeach go and take the fruit and everything? Or do we say no? Maybe the son cannot have a right to sell it while his father had a kinyan on the, on the field to eat the fruit. 
What's that question, Talian? Alma Kasavar Rabbi Yochanan holds Kenyan Peros Kikinian Haguf. Listen to this philosophy. What's the main essence of ownership? The essence of it, the guf, the land, or the usage? What is an ownership? If I own the field for the deed itself, but you have the usage of the field, who owns it? Who is the primary sense of owner? So Rabbi Yochanan says, this is an interesting concept, that the primary sense of ownership is based upon who can use it. So if the father was the one using the field in his lifetime, even though he gave over to his son, the king in Agof, but the father is the primary owner because he's the one who uses it. So therefore, when the son who owns only the essence tries to sell it, it's Kilu, he's selling something that's not his. If the father retained rights to the produce, he's the primary owner. That prevents the sale from working. So if the son then died, and now the father dies, so Lokeach doesn't get it. Because at the time that the son made the sale, he wasn't the owner. As Rish Lakish says, no, Rish Lakish, I'm not going to look at Lokeach, does acquire when the father dies. He holds Kisanimus' Macharbin in, in Lokeach, Hachiyamas Av. When the Mishnah said, if the son sold the property, the buyer doesn't have anything until the fire dies. Until the father dies. Kimai's Av, yes, is Lokeach. It implies that if the father then would die, the buyer does acquire it. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference if the son hadn't yet died, where the produce comes into his possession. Or even if the son had already died, where the produce didn't come to the possession of the son. Either way, the buyer acquires the property. What's the pshat? What does Rish Lakish hold? He holds that just because you have a right to use something, that doesn't make you a primary owner. The primary owner is the one holding the deed, which is the son. The chizavin, so when the son sold the property, he was selling something which was his. So now, let's go back to our case. Now we assume, presumably, we're talking about our case. Again, what was our case? Our case was, a wife has nechseim look. What does she have? She has the kinyan ha guf. During the lifetime, what does the, the, the husband have? The Kenyan Haperos. He uses it. She makes a sale. So if you think about it, could she make a sale or could the husband block it? She'd be dependent on this. If Kenyan Haperos is not Gulf, so then the husband can block the sale. Kenyan Haperos is not Gulf, he can't. So we assume that everyone should hold like Rish Lakish. You know why? Normally, Allah is like Rabbi Yochanan over Rish Lakish. But there are three exception, exceptions in Shas, and this is one of them. So the Gemara assumes everyone should all like Rish Lakish. Kenyan Peir says Lav Kenyan Aguf. So now let's go back to our case. But Kamar Biyam Rabbi Oder Biyam Rabbi says Sagla Kenyan Peir Kenyan Aguf. Kenyan Peir says Kenyan Aguf. Kimais Ava Meis Ben Bchai Avdin. If the father died and the son previously died in the father's lifetime, Amais Lokech. Why would the buyer have the property? He could sell it. I when the son was selling Lav Dei Kesavin, it wasn't his. So what's the Pshat on Rish Lakish? Rish Lakish obviously held Lav Shami Nal Kenyan Peir Lav Kenyan Aguf. Achron, I'm a little bothered. That line, these lines in the Gemara, are totally repetitive. We just proved one second ago. Rish Lakish holds Kenyan Peir Lav Kenyan Aguf. The Gemara is emphasizing again. We see really clearly Rish Lakish's opinion that the, the sale is upheld when the father died, even if the son is gone. We see his opinion is Kenyan Peir's Lafkin Kenyan Aguf. The son was the primary owner because he had the Kenyan Aguf. So now going back to over here with the wife and her Malo property, the wife should be the primary owner, not the husband, even though the husband has the right to use the field that shouldn't block a sale that the wife makes. So if the, the wife wants to make sure her husband doesn't inherit the property, she wants to make sure it's going to go to her son after she passes, so she writes it to him as a gift, She's, it's, in her, it's in her ability to do so, no problem. So, Adriel coming to Rav Yudah, so they got this argument back to Rav Yudah. Remember, Rav Yudah said it goes to the husband, not the sons. Amaluhu, he said, No, a woman giving away her property is not like that Mishnah of the son giving the son and the father. My time, what's the difference? If it had taught the reverse, if someone writes over his possessions for his father, meaning let's say it was the son's field that he was writing over to his father, 
Then he comes to me that Reish Lakish is not Then you could see that Reish Lakish's idea is based that Kinyan Peres is not Kinyan Kof. Al Hashem Tani Akosim Mechasav Livno. This that the Mishnah spoke about a case where someone wrote over his possessions to his son Mishum Deroy Liyarshu. It's different. The reason the sale is valid is that the son in any case is fit to inherit the father. What does that mean? What are we trying to say? Really, Kinyan Peres is Kinyan Kof. However, in that case, the father's ownership of the produce does not block the son's sale. Why not? Because the son, anyway, was going to be a Yorish. He was going to inherit the land when his father would die. So why is he giving him, oh, you're owning the land today. Why are you giving that to him at all? Anyways, he stands to inherit you when you pass on. The shot is, it must be that the father is coming to say, I'm giving it to you and like relinquishing my sense of ownership, even though I'm retaining the rights to the fruit and owning the fruit really should make me a primary owner. But it says, if I'm relinquishing that sense of primary ownership, because if not, what does it mean? What is the effect? Oh, I'm giving you the land. I'm still using it, right? So then what, do you, what way are you giving it? He, and he stands to inherit it anyway. So what way are you giving it? Must be you mean to say that I'm giving up my real ownership that I really should have because I'm retaining the Kenyan pairs. But I'm giving that up. And therefore, the son in that case is really more of a primary owner. So basically, we're saying, even if Kenyan pairs normally is Kenyan Agov, when a father gives the field to that son, we know he means to make the son the primary owner during the, even during the lifetime. Because if not, why is he giving it to him? Anyways, he's retaining the right to use the field, the father, and the son de- is destined to inherit him. But normally, in a regular case, we don't say that. We normally do say, Kenyan pairs, Kenyan Agov. So the Gemara objects that. A son can inherit a father, and a father can inherit a son. There, there are all cases, it's, it's possible. You know what's going on in that Mishnah? There were other brothers, and we spoke it out that way. It's not a valid argument. Why is he giving it over to him if anyways he's destined to inherit it? Because he wants to make sure he's going to be the only one to get it. He wants to make sure the other brothers aren't going to get it. So it's not the shot that he's giving away his primary ownership. So in the Mishnah's actual case, we could say he's just trying to make sure that he's making sure it's not going to go to the other brothers. So just as if his son would write it to the father, you would say the son is writing it to the father to make sure his own children don't get it, but that his father should get it. So to a father who writes it to his son, maybe he's just trying to make sure that the other brothers don't get it. So after all is said and done, the proof from the Mishnah was it absolutely good, right? In other words, what do I end up seeing from the Mishnah? Kenyan pairs, lavka Kenyan agov. Because if Kenyan pairs would be Kenyan agov, then the sales, the sale that the son makes, should be blocked by the father's primary ownership. We're going back to that. The father wrote it to the son while he's alive, but the father's retaining the right to use it. If rights to use it is makes you the primary owner, then that should block the son's ability to sell it while he's alive. So if the son died before the father, we should say that the, that the lokech is not able to take it. So we see Kenyan Paris laughing in Agov. So coming back to our case with the wife who sold her Malok property, how in the world are we saying that the husband is blocking the sale if we clearly see Kenyan Paris laughing in Agov? So the Gemara explains. What do we mean that the case is not like our Mishnah Mishum Takhanas Usha? It was a special enactment that was made in Usha. Usha is one of the places where the Rabbanon lived after the second base mitzvah was destroyed. And they made a bunch of legislations there. One of them is as follows. If a woman sold her maluk property while her husband was alive, and then the woman died, the husband can remove the property from the purchaser. It was a special takana. Why was it, why, why? Why did we make this takana? Because what's the one thing we want to make? We shalom bias. Can you imagine what was going on? If the, Remember, the husband would inherit his wife when she dies. And he has the right to use it while she's alive. But she, if the law would be, technically she could sell it 
and it would be a valid sale for after she dies, that's going to create the ill will, the animosity between the husband and the wife. Not much in this case. She's writing it to her son to block the husband from inheriting her. So that would create an animosity. So even though technically Kenya bears love, Kenya Nagov, and it should be within her rights to do that. But the, in Usha, they made a Takana know that a husband's Kenya Peros is stronger. Generally, Kenyan Peros is love, Kenyan Akof. The case that we spoke about with the, the father and the son, the son was able to sell because his father's right of usage didn't make him a primary owner. But a husband's right of usage, the Rabbanan made stronger. The Rabbanan did make him like the primary owner. He does have the right to block the sale of his wife. Why? Because we want to make sure that there's Shalom bias. That was a special Takana that was made in Usha. So therefore, we understand. On the one hand, the Psaq is when the wife sells it, when the sale is not upheld. She cannot sell. The husband's right to use it blocks it. On the other hand, the halacha is still like Rishal Kashakim Pierce Lafka Kinagov. But it's a special enactment that was made in Usha, specifically, that a husband can block the sales of his wife. Okay, we'll stop here for today. Again, what does it have to do with us and Baba Kama? That we've got to figure out tomorrow.